reading from Song of Songs, chapter 4. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips strip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits. Henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees and frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all choice spices. A garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north, north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Quinn. And church, if you have not already, please open to Song of Songs. It's there in your worship book. But if you'd like, it's also in the Old Testament. You can open up your old school Bibles and find it or type in Song of Songs or Song of Solomon chapter 4. If you are just joining us for the first time today, welcome. We are in the middle uh, of a series of Song of Songs. Um, It's a book that no doubt if you've grown up in the church, you've realized that a lot of spiritual communities uh, avoid this book of the Bible entirely. Um, And I've heard a few of you share you've never read this book of the Bible, never heard a sermon preached or a podcast discuss it. Um, Me either. And in the few short weeks we've been in this, you've likely discovered why. Why this has been avoided for generations or many different generations of the church. This is hard. This is hard to explore what we're exploring. Um... Exploring human sexuality through a gospel lens, through the scriptures, this is like the last place that we would want to go or perhaps would find or tr- believe that we would find anything so revealing and shocking because what it's, what it's doing ultimately is not just exposing, is it? It's reframing. It's reframing human sexuality, and that brings up a lot of different questions. It brings up a lot of pain. And so I want to encourage you, as, as we will every week, to be mindful of those things to collect those thoughts and experiences, share them with your group. And if you need a week off, it's cool. This is just me, not speaking necessarily for the, but sometimes we just need a week off. And we've had a lot to digest, a lot to think about. Um, But even if you take a week off, don't, don't let go of what the Lord is doing here. It's to catch our breath and to make sure we're continuing to journey through an important book of the Bible that through generations he has seen fit to keep in the canon. 
he has seen fit to secure here, and I think a lot is lost if we overlook it. It's brought up a lot of different things. In the first week, we looked at love. Uh, love is a joy, and yet uh, it also longs to be expressed physically, if you remember, and it's communal, which perfectly is embodied in the Trinity, God the Son, God the Spirit, and God the Father. That's love. And then we looked at sexuality. Sex is for us, if you remember, but it's not about us. We see this through the lens of both social and genital sexuality as we explored, which also points us to this diversity at unity within the Trinity. And last week, we looked at our desires. Desires are meant to lead us to shalom, to peace, to flourishing, to wholeness. And even if that shalom is not fulfilled or experienced in this life, and we have to wait for its full culmination in the age to come. Now, we've explored all of this, not because the song has made definitive statements about sexual ethics or sexual morality, Nevertheless, we're learning about God's truth and his beauty throughout the scriptures that is persistent and consistent throughout the scriptures, albeit in this particular moment, in a way that many of us are not accustomed to. See, Song of Songs is like the Psalms or like the very beginning of Genesis. It's very different than, say, Matthew's Gospel or Romans that we spent a good deal of time in. See, in a book like Matthew, we're reading a story, aren't we? It's a biographer. He's, he's written about the life of Jesus. So there, truth is revealed through characters and circumstances and the development of those circumstances and characters. And in a book like Romans, we read doctrinal statements in a letter, right? Truth is taught through proposition and instruction. But in a book like Song of Songs, we're reading a poem. And for some of us, we're like, what do we do with a poem? You know, what is that actually communicating about the heart of God? Well, in this case, truth isn't revealed or taught. It's painted. It's painted with nature, with emotions, with a cadence, with an order and a structure. And yet when all of these stories and letters and poems come together, what we get is a clearer and clearer picture of God himself. After all, God isn't just a story. He's not just doctrinal truths. He's not just a, a painting to be painted. In some respects, all of these things sort of capture different aspects about God. And when all of this comes together, they participate together in this overarching tapestry, if you will, of what God's Word is and what it's made of. And in many respects, it's what life is made of. There's some times where you just behold the ocean and you're like, I get God. And other times you receive instruction, you know, that makes sense about who God is. And other times you hear a story and you go, look at God. In each of those aspects, God is revealing himself. He is instructing us or he is merely showing us something about himself. I think this is really helpful to remember especially today, as we think about our bodies. See, the groom is going to look at his bride and he's going to describe her physically, her beauty. This is the first of four even physical, even erotic depictions in the poem, one of which is from the bride to the groom and the other three are the groom to the bride. And each of them is a prelude to lovemaking. And so it gets clear, it gets sensual, and maybe it gets really uncomfortable. But if we're not careful, we'll read his description today as some archaic and even draconian sort of standard of beauty. But of course, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? It's deeply personal. Old Testament scholar Dwayne Garrett explains that he is not describing so much how she looks, but how he feels when he looks at her. It's poetry. It's not teaching us doctrine. It's not describing a standard. The song is painting a picture of marital, sexual, and physical bliss, what it feels like. When mere, mere prose are going to fall short, he's like, I'm going to write a poem. 
Yet even as he gazes upon her, his enjoyment of her beautiful body comes with a holistic and relational commitment. He says, you have captivated my heart. See, beauty isn't just about the body. Beauty calls for the heart and the mind and the soul to be fully captured in unison with the body. That's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about beauty. I want to talk about our bodies. I want to talk about about our visible selves and how they are inextricably linked with our invisible selves. Here's how we'll organize our time together. We'll look at the design of the body, then we'll look at the distortion of the body, and then we'll look at the healing of the body. So as always, as we've followed this series, we'll move from the design, what God intends, and then the distortion, what's happened since the fall, and then the healing, what happens through God in Christ. So let's ask for his help. Heavenly Father, just merely mentioning the body, a million stories show up in our hearts and minds. Innumerable feelings and fears and emotions and longings, all of this shows up in our being, in our minds, in our hearts, in our souls, and yeah, even in our bodies. And so I pray for my sisters, I pray for my brothers, I pray for myself. Would we sense the calming presence of your spirit? that you never expose without deep care to heal and conceal and to make whole. And so in our vulnerability, would you comfort us? In our arrogance and pride, would you humble us? And in your truth, would you heal us? Because it is always a love that is, or truth that is spoken with love. So may we hear you, may we obey you, may we receive the healing power of your goodness, your grace, and your truth today. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read as the groom now beholds his bride and he speaks adoration over her body. Song of Psalms, Songs, uh, verse, chapter 4, verse 1 and through 7. Behold, he says, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, behold, or rather built in rows of stone, and it hung on it hung a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountains of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Notice that the groom's celebration of the bride's body is contained within a general confession of love and exclusivity of their relationship, their holistic beauty, if you will. This is true from the broader context when we sort of step back and look at the whole of Song of Songs, as much as it is true of the immediate and surrounding passage. See, in the previous stanza, the bride speaks this language of the soul four times. If you remember in chapter 3, she says that she was looking for him whom my soul loves. And in this passage, the bride begins, or rather the groom begins by saying, you are my beautiful, my love, behold, you are beautiful. 
And then he ends, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. See, he's speaking holistically, broadly, completely. And by the end of the song, the bride exclaims, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. See, between these immediate immediate bookends, the groom moves from her eyes to her breasts. All along the way, he describes what he sees and what he feels beyond purely physical through poetic description. Her eyes are like doves conveying tenderness and gentleness. Notice her teeth are like a flock of sheep, and this is amazing. He pays careful attention to the fact that her teeth are white and she's not lost any of them. And he's saying, praise God, both are scarce qualities in the ancient world. And so what's he saying? There there is a cleanliness and a health, and I rejoice in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? But her lips also and her mouth are lovely. And there is no doubt he wants to kiss her. This conveys a similar urge she has back at the very beginning of the song. Her neck is a tower. It's dignified. It's wondrous. Her breasts are fawns and gazelles among the flowers. The meaning of this metaphor is less obvious. But it's clear that ultimately what he is anticipating is not just beholding and looking at her, but drawing close and he desires to have sex with her. In fact, in each of these four physical descriptions of the song, the speaker stops when they arrive at the object of their sensual attention. See, while we might be a bit uncomfortable with the specificity, we're we're cool with generalities, but this is a bit too specific perhaps for some of us in these sensual descriptions. This is anything but prudish. He's not objectifying her. He's enjoying her. Not only will she soon describe him similarly in the next chapter, but he also respects and acknowledges boundaries. As we've mentioned, physical pleasure comes within the boundaries of committing their whole selves to one another. Not only so, but his physical impulses and visual stimulation are surrendered to her permission as he waits to hear back from her. Listen as he continues in verse 8. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amina, from the peak of Cerner and Hermon, from the dens of the lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine? and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits. Henna with nard and nard with saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh, and aloes with all choice spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water, a flowing stream, flowing streams from Lebanon. Notice, though he's beholding her body physically, he's also surrendered. Her body and relationship with him, he describes as a locked garden, a locked spring, a sealed fountain. In Hebrew literature, springs and fountains illustrate male and female sexuality. See, he's not forcing himself upon her or manipulating her. He's seeing her body through the lens of her soul. 
Their impending physical union is part of a more holistic humanity. It's a mutual surrender, self-giving, and covenant kind of love. Here's where the design of our bodies comes into focus. You see, from the beginning, our bodies were designed good. After God makes the first humans, Adam and Eve, he calls them very good. There's intrinsic value to humanity's physical nature and form. Adam was made, the scriptures tell us, of the dust from the ground, and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Eve was physically made from Adam. While he God took one of his ribs and closed its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, Genesis 2 tells us, he made into a woman. When Adam sees Eve, he doesn't, he doesn't drop some sort of like instruction manual. He, he doesn't like just tell a story about how it happened. Do you know what he does? He sings. He celebrates. He flows off the top of his head and he says, she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she's taken out of man. You're like, drop that right now. Drop that beat. That's dope. She's very good. This beholding then is a prelude to their lovemaking too. In marriage, we're told, they become one flesh and they have no shame. Our bodies are good and beautifully physical. Yet we sense there's more going on, don't we? See, the Bible speaks about this design of the human body through the language or a term called the image of God. We're told in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. See, the divine image helps us understand how our spirituality, what is invisible, is in harmony with our sexuality, what's visible. Author Deborah Hirsch has written a really helpful book called Redeeming Sex. And she describes our bodies, our beings, through this uniqueness and interdependency of our sexuality and our spirituality. Spirituality, she says, is a vast longing that drives us beyond ourselves in an attempt to understand our world, to know and be known by God. On the other hand, sexuality, she says, is a longing that drives us beyond ourselves in an attempt to connect with that which is other than ourselves, a longing to know and be known by other people. See, we image God or we reflect and represent him on earth through our connection with God and each other. Do you know that you cannot image God by yourself? It is always designed and meant to be through body-soul relationship. That's our design. That's the design of our bodies. Our spirituality is our desire to be seen and loved by God. It's our souls. Our sexuality is our desire to be seen and loved by others. It's our bodies. The image of God, then, is the union of these two desires and forms. Being whole is about being seen equally and simultaneously, body and soul. So as the groom enjoys the bride's whole being, he desires her physically within the boundaries of her worthiness, her autonomy, and her mutual commitment. See, her body is for his beholding only because they've been giving themselves heart, mind, body, soul to each other. His body is for her beholding because they've given their souls to one another. See, much of what means to be a human being then, if this is our design, much of what it means to be a human being is missed and even harmed when we neglect this perspective 
when we disconnect the body from the soul. That's the distortion. See, this isn't the first time that the bride's body has been subject to observation. If you remember, back in chapter 1, she confesses a deep self-consciousness because her body was judged by society. It was abused by her brothers. If you recall, Song of Songs 6, she says, Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. In this case, her body is viewed without consideration of her soul. Her black skin judged as undesirable. Her able body overburdened by anger. Her physicality, you see, was detached from her sacredness. That's the distortion of the body. If you remember, the moment Adam and Eve sinned, the beauty of their beings was swallowed up by what? Shame. They immediately feel shame. They no longer saw their bodies through the lens of their souls. They no longer thought their bodies were very good. They actually told God. They spoke back to him. said, what you said is very good is actually very bad, and we're going to hide it. They realized they were naked, and they covered their bodies, not only with fig leaves, but then behind trees. It wasn't enough just to cover their bodies a little bit. They had to cover their entire bodies. Pastor Rich Velotis notes in his book, The Deeply Formed Life, that sin distorts Adam and Eve's vision ironically, by opening their eyes. Prior to this moment, he says, they saw with the pure eyes of God. Now they see with the marred vision of human fallenness. Their sexuality was ripped away from their spirituality. And you and I, we still carry that burden. Wittingly and unwittingly, whether we know it or not, we still carry that particular burden priest Ron Rollhauser describes us as children of a painful divorce in his book, The Holy Longing. See, despite the oneness of spirituality and sexuality in the garden, they have now gone through a significant split and separate ways. Rollhauser says, religion got to keep God and the secular got to keep sex. And we find ourselves torn between the two, unconsciously longing for the two to come back together again. Our bodies and souls, church, have been separated. And this is why we never read or teach Song of Songs, because we think that's not for Christians to talk about. Secular people, non-religious people, they talk about sex. We just talk about God. Stay in your lane. This is the distortion. This is how the distortion shows up in our bodies. The distortion of the body shows up and wreaks havoc in a few primary ways in our cultural moment, and I'd like to catalog three of those. The first is a visual distortion. We behold bodies without beholding souls. We behold bodies without beholding souls. In a word, we lust. Jesus explains it this way in Matthew chapter 5. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, our world is highly visual, isn't it? We, we see someone else's body as they walk by at work or at the gym, and we lock on when we reflect. We may not think about it too much in that moment, but we file save, and we recall that image later and perhaps imagine their nakedness or imagine having sex with them. There's no spirituality, in other words. There's only sexuality. 
Our screens are oversaturated with pictures of bodies that have been disconnected from relationship and mutuality and sacredness. This happens so much, we, we don't, weren't even aware of it anymore. Sex therapist Dr. Ursula Offman told New York Magazine back in 20, uh, or rather 2003, that pornography is drawing young men in particular into what she called a compulsive behavior that disables them from having relationships with real and actual women. Now, this may seem like common knowledge to us, but this is devastating to relationships not only before marriage, but in marriage. We don't know how to relate to one another because sexuality and spirituality have been torn apart. We behold bodies without souls, and it's harming all of us. Secondly, the second aspect of this distortion is the distortion of relationship. It's a relational distortion. In other words, we give our bodies without giving our souls. Paul teaches the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, a little bit of historical context. The Corinthian church, it seems like, wrote Paul a letter with some questions. And one of the questions is, is it okay to get married? Which is really interesting because today in the church, we think, is it okay to stay single? Right? We have almost the exact opposite question. So they were favoring the, the freedom of singleness to, in order to do the work of God. And here, we favor sexuality and lift it up and say, well, you want to have sex, you better get married. So marriage is for the good people that God loves, right? And so we've actually almost completely twisted it. So we might even miss the historical context if we're not careful. So Paul writes back and he says, marriage then is about what? It's about giving ourselves body and soul to another. This union is meant to tell the story. Paul writes about in Ephesians, or, yeah, Ephesians chapter 5. It's about telling the story about how Jesus offers his whole self, body and soul, for his bride, the church, and how the church gives herself in Romans chapter 12, body and soul to Christ. And so Paul says that the temptation or the burning passion that Paul is talking about is the desire to have sex when you're not married. Because right? they're writing, is it okay to stay single? And he's like, yeah, but some of you are going to burn with passion. And instead of burning with passion, you should get married. Sex before marriage, then, what Paul is saying, is about giving your body without giving your soul. Sex outside of marriage, even after you're married, is about giving your body without giving your soul. It's separating your sexuality and your spirituality. Now, allow me two brief digressions. I mean, it's never brief, but two digressions. Because I think we've been talking a lot about this in our groups, in one-on-one conversations, is what, the, what, is the scriptures, what do the scriptures actually say about this? Here's my first digression. What Paul is employing is this overarching biblical ethic about our, our souls and our bodies. But he's also using a particular term in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's the term sexual immorality. So what's that? Well, in the New Testament, the Greek word is porneia, where we get the root, root word for pornography even in our own language. It shows up well over 30 times in the New Testament. It's a very inclusive, in other words, wide-reaching term that means unlawful sexual intercourse or sexual sin of any kind. It's sort of a junk drawer term for fornication, adultery, prostitution, and even Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5, which actually has no physical contact, but it's sin within your mind and your thoughts and your heart. Professor Sam Storms says it about as plainly as you can. 
He says, every Greek lexicon or dictionary of the New Testament is in agreement that porneia refers to any form of sexual activity before or outside the relationship of monogamous marriage between a man and a woman. That's the meaning of the term. He could have used any term, and this is the one that he used. That's the first tangent. The second tangent, I think, is birthed out of that. See, when we give our bodies without giving our souls, we, in essence, are commodifying the body. And this is why this teaching, I think, holds fast. It's sex as transaction. According to the Bible, sex isn't about self-expression. It's not even about self-gratification. It's not about status. Sex is about radical self-giving. Anything and everything else is a distortion. Now, you may say, because I've heard this from you, and I get it, you might say, that's offensive. That's really hurtful. I may not be married, but I love the person I am with sexually, so how dare you think that I have not also given my heart and my soul to a person? Why do I need some silly piece of paper to prove that I have given my heart and my soul? I would merely ask you, if you have given yourself heart and soul, what is a little piece of paper to just tell that story? The equal but opposite, if you will. See, to that I would say, of course, you are absolutely in love. No one is questioning whether or not you are in love with the whole person. You may even be engaged. Congratulations. Yet without marriage, have you really surrendered your life? Have you really said all of me for all of you? Or have you hedged your bets? You haven't become one in promise and vow and in covenant. Without marriage, without covenant, we remain in a consumer-based relationship predicated upon our respective feelings, happiness, and satisfaction. It's not based on promises nor on souls. Thirdly, digression over. Thirdly, the third distortion. Not only is this a distortion of what we see visually and our relationships and giving our bodies without giving our souls, the third distortion is of value. We assign value without valuing the soul. See, while we might agree that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, isn't it true that there's kind of a social expectation and agreement, this is what beautiful looks like? This is what beauty is. There's sort of a social standard that as a society, we define beauty together. And you are valuable whether or not, depending on or not, if you measure up to that particularly prescribed social definition. But this, of course, is nothing new. We always think we invent stuff. And then you open the Bible, you go, oh, this is pretty old. The story of Jacob, Leah, and Rachel. Have you heard it? It shows up this way. Jacob was a pretty uh, dissatisfied person, kind of disgruntled with the life, the, the cards he was dealt, if you will. And so he started looking to marriage, like many of us, to make him whole and complete. Because he saw Jerry Maguire and thought, why not me too? Someone else can make me whole, I'll find my Renee Zellweger. And he does. He finds Rachel. He finds Rachel, desires Rachel, because she meets a particular standard. Hear this from Genesis chapter 29. He goes to this guy named Laban who had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, it's not good, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And what does it say? Jacob loved Rachel. Jacob loved Rachel. He wanted Rachel. By cultural standards of beauty, then Leah didn't measure up. Rachel did. She was beautiful. So Jacob wanted Rachel because of the value assigned to her appearance. He didn't know anything else about her. And he gave his life seven years in pursuing Rachel and if you've heard the story, you know it doesn't go well. It doesn't go well. And we do the same thing. When we are looking for a partner, we may joke about our high standards, but we ought to consider if our standards are righteous. 
if they are godly or if they are informed by the prevailing cultural definition of what beauty and love look like. See, it's a distortion. It's not wrong to be drawn to someone's appearance, but it is a distortion to ascribe cultural ideals of beauty without considering the soul. See, when we distort the body visually, relationally, and in terms of value, what we are doing in essence in our hearts and our minds is detaching body from soul. And these distortions have done unthinkable damage to our own concept of ourselves, our own bodies, and the bodies of the people around us. After all, too often, our bodies have been violated by someone else. We've been looked at as a body and not as a soul. We haven't given ourselves without our soul, but someone took our body without consideration of our soul. We didn't esteem our bodies without our soul, but someone else did. Someone else ascribed value to your body. Therefore, in the midst of this, not only if we have willfully participated in these distortions, but if these distortions have merely harmed us, someone else sinned against us, our bodies, what they have done is absorbed lies about who we are and about our body itself. In his book, The Body Keeps the Score, Basil Van Kolk explains that the greatest sources of our suffering are the lies we tell ourselves. In Church in the Square, we have told an innumerable amount of lies to our bodies and about our bodies. And daily, we are absorbing more and more lies about our bodies, constantly then carrying these wounds in the form of anxiety, discontent, shame, anger, and self-hatred. We need healing. I need healing. You need healing. One day, Jesus visited the home of a teacher of the Jewish law, and as they were eating, Luke tells us an, an uninvited guest shows up. Luke chapter 7 records, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that she was reclining at table in the Pharisee, when that he was at reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with oil. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this and not invited her, he said, they said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this was who was touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, answering him. Remember, he spoke to himself, and Jesus answers him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answers, say it, teacher. Jesus then tells a story about forgiveness and gratitude. Then he recounts the beautiful affection that this woman had shown him. See, a woman of the city was a prostitute, and in the ancient world, prostitutes in the Roman Empire were enslaved people. The same is true today that many prostitutes or those who are sex workers are trapped within a particular kind of system that will not let them out. And so when she walks into the room, even the most spiritual people in the room, what do they see? A body without a soul. They see her, phys they see her physicality, but they don't see her sacredness. Her body then is taken in their minds without their soul by someone else. She is being violated simply by walking into the room. Her body is judged. Luke tells us that Jesus then speaks to her. And he says to her, your sins are forgiven. 
Then those who were at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this who can forgive sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What's happening here? Jesus speaks forgiveness. Jesus speaks peace. Jesus speaks what? To her soul. He knows what her body has been through. And he brings healing by seeing her body and soul. He hears the lies her body has absorbed and he speaks truth back to that darkness. Peace, forgiveness, shalom. See, church, religion tells us that we heal our bodies by living differently. Don't lust after another body. Don't have sex before you're married. Don't commit adultery. Don't submit to the cultural standards of beauty in the world. In other words, what? Don't detach the body from the soul. Try harder and be better. Live within the boundaries of obedience. The problem with the moral solution is what? We're imperfect. Trying harder never works. Have you ever tried? It doesn't work. Okay, don't think lustful thoughts. Just had three. It doesn't work. You can't try harder. The problem is not your effort, or rather the solution is not your effort. The problem is. Either way, even if we're succeeding for like a little bit, we get arrogant and conceited, and we've fallen short. And then if we don't succeed, we feel shame. The moral solution does not work. Modern society tells us to heal our bodies by thinking differently. Souls and bodies don't necessarily belong together. They're mine. I can do as I please. I can detach them or bring them together. As long as there is consent and mutual enjoyment, let our bodies feel pleasure. We reject, then, boundaries of obedience. The problem with the modern solution is twofold. Firstly, moral freedom, all it does is redefine legalism. It just gives us another set of rules. It doesn't abolish legalism. It doesn't abolish some moral standard. Secondly, it also fosters a different brand of arrogance by making bodily autonomy ultimate. In other words, what's happening? We don't image God rightly. Rather, we act more like creators than creation. We get to do as we please, not as our creator pleases. See, Jesus is the only one who brings healing because he alone sees us body and soul. Marriage then, shaped by his love, brings healing. Sex, shaped by his wholeness, brings healing. Friendship, shaped by his holiness, brings healing. Relationships with men and women in which bodies are not detached from souls but seen together, that brings healing, church. When our bodies are seen through our souls and given with our souls and valued with our souls, it reorients our bodies around the truth. The power and basis for all of this is where? In the incarnation of the Son of God. Think about this, the image of God himself. You see, the Son of God was perfectly spiritual in eternity past, but he had no sexuality and no body. The one with a soul but no body, what's he do? He comes and takes on a body and brings the soul and the body together. That's the incarnation. And Jesus is the most human being ever. In his incarnation, then Jesus brings healing, but also in his death, Jesus brings healing too. After all, it's on the cross that Jesus' spirit is actually ripped from his flesh. His body was viewed without viewing his soul. His body was taken without consent from his soul. His body was devalued without considering his soul. Jesus endured precisely what makes our bodies ache. Jesus heard every lie that your body has absorbed, and he spoke truth back to that darkness. And then three days later, Jesus rose from the dead with a completely refreshed body. 
a body that was no longer vulnerable to the ailments of this world. And the Bible tells you some incredible news, that that's the of a new creation. That if you want to know about your body and what it will be like in the age to come, we can behold the body of Christ. Paul put it this way to the Philippian church, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables even him even to subject all things to himself. My sister and my brother, our bodies will be redeemed. Our bodies will be like Christ, bodies that are healed, that are whole, and that are perfectly wed with our souls. Therefore, the bride says something incredible to the groom. She begins to tell this story of healing when they come together. In poetic form, they show us and help us feel the joy of Christ bringing wholeness to his people. The bride says, Awake, O north wind. O come, O south wind, blow upon my garden. Let its spices flow. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat its choicest fruit. What's going on? The bride is welcoming her groom, not just in part, but in whole body and soul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need healing. because of the sin that we have committed and participated in, because of the brokenness of this world, because of the, the sin committed against us, because of the lies our bodies have absorbed. So, Father, would you help us to step into the light, not for objectification and scrutiny and judgment, but so that truth can be spoken back to darkness. So that truth can replace every lie we have believed about our bodies, about our sexuality, about our spirituality, about our souls. For some of us, this is the first step in a multi-year journey where we'll need friendship, community, counseling, healing. For others of us, we have no idea what this journey will be like, but we want to step in the light and begin to know and understand what obedience looks like. And so for my sisters and brothers in all of those different spaces of the journey, would you faithfully call us together to be a people who are whole, who see each other and see ourselves as God in Christ sees us, body and soul, meant to reflect the very image of our God. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.